Welcome to the most boring Nat Geo special of your entire life. But hey, it's Alec Guinness. <laughs> Let's pick these berries. Join us on a journey as we frolic through fields of filmmaking follies. Join us on this week's episode of Raspberry Fields Forever. You suck. What's up, everybody? Jesse Rodden here with another episode of Raspberry Fields Forever. Coming at you today with my co-host and heterosexual life mate, Mr. Kieran Gibbs. Kieran, how you doing today, bud? What's going on, Silent Bob? Jay here. <laughs> oh man, yeah, we have a uh, we have a good one today. Um, I guess it depends on your definition of good. We have an aggressively mid one. Yeah, uh, raise the Titanic. Uh, it is not the Titanic movie that we're all hoping for because, well, that's not this podcast. This one was actually made before the James Cameron flick, so this one predates it by, I guess, what about 13 years, something like that. Hell, it predates when they actually found the Titanic because uh, it was in 1980 and they found the Titanic in 1985. Oh, I didn't know that. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. Like they found, yeah, this that's the reason why like in James Cameron's one, uh, you know how the, uh, the Titanic breaks in half and then like goes down. In this one, it didn't do that. They, they made the boat go down all like in one piece and come to find out that's not exactly what happened. So yeah, I, I just found that a little bit interesting, but anyways, raise the Titanic. Yeah. This, uh, this film is, is not the greatest. It's one of those ones that it doesn't have a lot of plot to it. It's a lot of scenic looking at muddy water. There is a specific uh, phrase that Kevin Smith used in one of his uh, comedy specials, and it was called shooting with my film dick. And I think that's precisely what this thing does. It's just burning reels of film because, oh, my God, look, it's so pretty ice caps. Pretty much. And then they're not really doing it well either, because a lot of those drone shots, even I know they're in a helicopter or whatever, trying to get those type of shots and stuff. But it is some of the shakiest drone footage I've ever seen in my life. It was terrible. Well, before we get into the actual meat and potatoes, I had just something real neat before I thought we went into it. Did you know Jerry Jameson, the guy who directed the film, he was an editor on the Mod Squad. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. He also directed Airport 77. Whoever gives a shit about that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't even know what that movie is. So it is what it is. But yeah, so Raise, Raise the Titanic uh, stars, well, a lot of people that... I, you know, I've seen in a lot of doing a lot of character work and stuff, but they've never really been any uh, people of like true. No, I guess any starring characters, you know, um, it's uh, Jason Robards, um, which he's been in several, several things. But he's always that guy who kind of blends into the background and you don't like he's never like the main guy in a lot of his things, or at least a lot of things that I've seen with him in it. He's not that type of person. Uh, same with Richard Jordan and uh, David Shelby. Both I've seen in other things before, and I think they're decent actors, but they've never really been main players. And this movie to me shows you why, because, oh my gosh, I mean, their chemistry between the three guys is just not really, not really connecting. And there's supposed to be that friction between uh, David and Richard's characters. Um, I believe their name is Gene and Dirk Pitt. <laughs> to which Dirk Pitt couldn't be more of an eighties protagonist name if you tried. Yeah, this is also a adaptation of a book by Clive Cussler, which uh, sounds like an insult for a kid who doesn't know how to not use curse words on the playground. 
<laughs> all right. Well, I think that's pretty much all we can give away without really going into the meat and potatoes of it. So um, it's time to move on to our next segment called God Save the Screen. God Save the Screen. So in God Save the Screen, we just talk about what we call the meat potatoes. We get into the heart of the plot uh, and just kind of really go from beginning to end and let you guys uh, experience this in a much better version of it, I would say, than watching the real thing, because the real thing is actually two hours long and they could have cut what probably 40 minutes of that just by getting rid of underwater muddy footage there's a reason i said at the beginning that it's the most boring national geographic special because yeah it's getting on the landscape but you don't have that like totsy british dude just giving you nature facts it's just silence with a pretty decent score the thing that pisses me off about the movie to begin with is that we open the movie and there's two opening title sequences <laughs> There's there's a black and white slideshow, and let me know if I'm mistaken because everything just kind of runs together for me. These white folks all look the same. <laughs> You're already on track, so I'm gonna let you keep going. And we do this black and white sort of slideshow of the original Titanic, and then it fades to black, and we're like, okay, let's get the movie started. And then we open on a landscape shot of the ocean in color, and then we see the cast list start going, and I'm like, son of a bitch, we have to go through this again. But Jesse, what did it, when we finally meet these characters, you know, what sort of shells of characters they are, what do they, what, what do they want, Jesse? Tell me, what do they need? What's their motivation? There's really not that much character motivation between any of the characters because it all kind of is happenstance because, okay, sorry, we need to, we need to start over just a little bit because before we even get into the characters of it all, this starts in Northern Siberia. We forget that like this movie starts off and it doesn't start off at the ocean or like port side or anything like that. No, we're in the fucking Arctic. Like we are in like ice and, and there's somebody that's breaking into some old snow covered mine and he ends up like discovering this frozen body. It's kind of just happenstance like right next to the frozen body of this corpse is like this wooden marker uh that is like i guess they burned into the marker here lies the person who's dead and it's uh, <laughs> and it's supposed to be somebody with titanic and it, and it gives you the interpretation that there's something with this byzanium is that a real thing i don't i don't think so man i like i've never heard of byzanium before i mean we could look it up real quick but off the top of my head, no. <laughs> I guess he's. I guess he was looking initially for this Byzantium stuff, and it was there, but it has since moved. How it got moved was by way of the Titanic before it sank, um, which is just a convoluted way of starting this whole thing. Before you even introduce a true character who's going to stay with you throughout this entire film, we have this whole like little uh, short story about this guy breaking into this ice and it then it ends up becoming, you know, that true 1980s thing where, you know, we got to, we got to involve the Russians. Real, real, real Jack Ryan kind of esque stuff going on. Very much that. And then we're introduced to who I would think is our main character, but he's actually not top build, which is uh, David Shelby. Him to me is the main character. It's him who makes the decision in the end. Don't want to get too far into that, but he's the one who kind of spurs 
the th- the whole process along. He's the scientist behind like trying to find the byzanium and they're trying to do it for a defense protocol, which, okay, whenever they're explaining that defense protocol and they were talking about how like it's, it's stronger than plutonium and it could bounce missiles and nobody could ever hit the United States and it would be like a wall on both of our sea borders. And I'm like, are they talking about the Star Wars program from the Reagan administration? You know what I'm saying? Well, like the funny thing is I just looked it up. Byzanium is completely made up, but you can use it in Minecraft. <laughs> okay. You can actually use things to craft with it. And you're right, because we see this guy, and it's not, it, it looks a lot like Dirk, what what the fuck is his name? Dirk Pitter? <laughs> Dirk Pitt. Dirk Pitt. It looks a lot like Dirk Pitt, but it's not Dirk Pitt, because later we see Dirk Pitt rescue him from Siberia. Right, because Dirk Pitt is, you know, the ruggedly handsome guy who's got the beard, even though they still look the same. Yeah, exactly. After we see this guy in Siberia come across this mysterious thing, we are transported back to this war room where we meet M. Emmett Walsh and Jason Robards, correct? Yes, that's where we meet them. And then I guess they send in the cavalry because that's whenever they call in Dirk Pitt to the situation. And the way they describe him is so he sucks the air out of every room he's in and he only does things when he wants to and he plays by his own rules. They talk about him like he's so revered, like, you know, he's the loose cannon. Exactly. Like he's fucking Emmett Smith on the Cowboys. When in all reality, he just sounds like a guy who doesn't follow the rules and should probably be fired. (laughs) <laughs> to a certain extent yeah and then you know he he's supposed to be this ruggedly handsome dude because um and archer's in this movie plays the love interest of gene seagram and dirk pitt god these gene names seagram man. And dirk yeah. pitt. <laughs> dr gene seagram and dirk pitt oh my god apparently and archer's name is dana archibald this dude with his name, I can guarantee you at least one of these writing processes. Homeboy was sitting at his typewriter, just click clackety, click clacking away. And then he was like, I need a name. I need a name. And this is, and I haven't read the original book. So maybe it was in the original book, but if it was the original author, he just looked over on his uh, liquor cabinet and just saw a big old bottle of Seagram's. Mm-hmm. And then was like, there it is. That's it. <laughs> I got it. Genius. <laughs> Richard Jordan or Dirk Pitt is supposed to be this ruggedly handsome dude because even Ann Archer's character, like whenever she runs into him on the street, she's just like, I mean, she is taken aback. She's getting the vapors, you know, she's just my Lord. As he's telling her, he, uh, uh, you're too good for him. Talking about uh, David Shelby's character. Yeah. And he doesn't even know David at that point. Like he's never even met the character. So that, then that is one of the things I think what brings the quality of this movie down is they try to Im- implement these human subplot characters. And amidst trying to go into the Titanic and find this Byzanium, like you said, our two main characters, I think. But when these two are meeting, they just happen to be like, they're not already linked because of their job. They have to be linked because of a woman. That's what makes the story interesting. Not the mm-hmm. fact that, you know, raising the fucking titanic but it's not about the girl they never actually bring up the woman to each other they never bring it up that they know the same person and they're obviously in love with the same person and so like they're trying to like outdo each other on this job you know it just it just ends up being a dick measuring contest this entire movie to me is nothing but these terrible plot lines of this dick measuring contest between these two guys and then also with I guess really this group of guys were America and the Russians. It's a very bad plot on top of the fact that it's not much plot and it's two hours long. 
Well, so their plan is to just send a whole bunch of submarines down there and they don't know what the hell they're going to go into. They found allegedly again, they didn't find the Titanic until you said 1985. So we have no idea of knowing what's true. They have the three points, quote unquote, that were received when the Titanic did sink, where all three ships reported that it sunk and they hadn't been able to find it. So they're just finding like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of square miles of ocean into this middle sort of segment where it might be sending real life people with real life families down there in submarines that cannot handle that atmospheric pressure. Is it atmospheric? No. Oceanic, my mistake. Oceanic gives a pressure. Yeah. <laughs> that cannot really withstand that kind of oceanic pressure and just saying it might be down there to yeah. Byzantium. I don't give a shit if you're going to miss your kid's birthday, Robert. You get in that submarine and you die for the plot. <laughs> well, you die because America needs to beat the Soviet Union. This is another reason why I'm glad that we're not sticking around in the 80s. We're going to be like jumping around from decade to decade. It's because I have a feeling that a lot of these movies from the 80s, a lot of it's going to come down to Russians. You know what, Tim, Joe, Roger, who are going on this submarine that goes down to excavate that would eventually implode. That's what happens in the movie. Um, they they first go to excavate and one of the submarines implodes. I don't give a damn if you just give birth to your daughter. I don't give a damn if you have a son who needs round the clock care. I'll be goddamned if those Ruskies get to look at this old mucky ship. Oh, you know, one thing that we didn't talk about, which I just thought was funny, uh, just because it's kind of a it's a silly trope that has happened in a lot of movies. And I don't understand why. But whenever Seagram and his girlfriend, um, <laughs> Dana, Dana Archibald, whenever they are fishing on the dock and they're like lamenting back and forth. And she's talking about how she does know who Dirk Pitt is. And, you know, he's somebody from her past, but, you know, they never dated and thought I was too good for him and that type of thing. And then a helicopter out of nowhere just comes rushing in over the water and is like, are you Dr. Seagram? You need to get back to D.C. And they, and they just treat it like they got a text from their boss, not as if this giant flopping thing just entered their private property and is probably fucking up a lot of lawns. <laughs> probably. I'd love to be the neighbor's house. Like, what the fuck is going on over there? Like, their poor little chihuahua has just been ripped in half. And, you know, because of the centrifugal force. Well, and before they even get onto the boat to go looking for the Titanic, um, Fucking, they run into Alec Guinness of all people. He's placed this person, uh, John Bigelow is his name in the movie. And he plays a person who was somebody who was actually on the Titanic when it sank. He's got a couple memorabilia pieces and they're trying to get a little bit of information from him on where it may have sank. And does he know if this Isanium substance was on there? And apparently he's the person who who whenever the Titanic was going down, someone had put a gun in his back and told him that he needed to get down to some storage locker. And so he opened the storage locker for him and put that guy inside of it as the Titanic went down. And that's where they believe that the Byzanium was. So it, it, it's a lot of exposition in that very beginning, like the first 30, 40 minutes of this movie is nothing but straight exposition to really tell you what's about to happen. And it just drags on so much. Like all you needed to tell us was there's 
something better than plutonium that's in the Titanic and we're going to go find the Titanic. But no, you had to like take us to the war room, show us the triangle. This is where you guys are going to be. Then we need to go talk to Alan Guinness. And then we need to just make sure that like, oh, we, oh, we have to go get a sign off from the president. We got to get that first. So, you know, Jason Robart's character comes into his office and it's like, I think we're in business, boys. It's just a lot of extra. This flick seems like Chuffa incarnate. With Alec Guinness's scene entirely, because he's the biggest name in the movie is there just to give you a port name where you might be able to find the Byzanium, which also you had mentioned. How convenient is it that the one guy who's still alive was the one guy who knew exactly where the Byzanium was? I obviously know that that's a screenplay thing, but fuck you. I'm not stupid. (laughs) Well, I might be a little stupid, but when it comes to movies, I'm like halfway smart. Well, and then we start getting the other side of the story where we start flashing over to what the Russians are doing. And that's whenever we get Elia Baskin, who, you know, I've seen him in other things and I don't want to disrespect the guy because I do love his work and everything he's in. He's played some great comedies and stuff like that. But he will forever be the guy from Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. He's the guy who's asking for his rent money. And (laughs) you got my rent? Pay me my rent. Like... That's the movie where Tobey Maguire turns around and says, you'll get your rent when you fix this damn door. (laughs) That is probably the uh, quintessential Elia Baskin role to me. Like, I love it. And the last thing about Alec Guinness, his presence there was not required at all. He introduces Dirk Pitt to the bar matron. And the bar matron's like maybe in her late 40s, early 50s, seems like a nice enough woman. But he feels need to mention when when she's pouring their drinks, he says something along the lines of, And if you had to bet money on it, she's probably still a maiden. And what he means by that is she probably hadn't seen a dick, huh? (laughs) (laughs) That's just a random thing to throw in there, Obi-Wan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was just he was just rousing the barmaid. I I think I'm too good for Star Wars, but then I'll be in this piece of shit. (laughs) Well, then we get onto the boat. And they're starting to search that area and they're having trouble. And this is where we start getting over and over again, just these shots of just murky ocean water and them in the subs and then like, nope, we can't find it. Checking in anything yet. Nope. Nothing yet. All right. Let me know what's happening. Like, it's just, it just drug on. There's all these like things that end up happening. Like you were saying, we started getting into like one of the subs ends up getting stuck and it ends up having like fire on board. And then all of a sudden it explodes and what, like three, four people die. Three people die. They're down below, below depths. From what I understand, it started flooding and they tried to send people under it. And I didn't even know they died because again, like you had mentioned, the water is so dark, you cannot tell what the hell's going on. So I didn't know that they had died until like the, all you see is the lights go out in the submarine and it's filling with water and it's sinking further. And they're trying to pull this lever, presumably to drop some weight so they can go up top. And then all of a sudden you just see like random spurts of bubbles everywhere. And I have no idea what's happened until somebody says, it's imploded, sir. And whereas I'm supposed to feel bad because these people have died, I'm just like, oh, that's what happened. Good. Now I know what's happening. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, you know, they have that brief moment of being like these these men died so we could find this ship and then they're back to it. Like nothing really happened. You know, 
they make one mention of like, you, but we better find something quick or, you know, you, we might have a mutiny on our hands. And then immediately next scene, it's like, yeah, I think we found something. And then what did they find? What did they find? They found a trumpet. A uh, trumpet no, 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 in the no. water. No, it was not a trumpet. It was a coronet. There's a difference. There's okay. a big difference. Well, sorry, my bad. A coronet. The funniest thing to me was the fact that they show this coronet in the water and it's just got all of this moss and algae and just nastiness. I was coral. Coral was the word that I was looking for, but it's just got all of this on it. And then they, the next scene is them. And apparently, I guess they've gone back to land. And this horn is absolutely pristine. It is the shiniest chrome plated horn you've ever seen in your life. And they are reading the inscribed markers on the horn like it was written yesterday. <laughs> well, 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 you see, it's because down deep below the depths where there's not enough light touching and there's so much pressure, just pseudoscience, pseudoscience that the writer put in so they could put some shit in. All right. Well, you went a little bit Bill Cosby with it, with your, well, you know, you're super science and you, you know. I, I was going, oh my God. <laughs> I was, I was, I was going for like a, for like, I don't even know what I was going for, but it certainly wasn't Bill Cosby, but that <laughs> voice is going right in the garbage where it belongs. <laughs> well, it was either the Bill Cosby voice or is Whitey from eight crazy nights. Is it the happy seizure of my life? It's just not fair. We're getting off topic. We're getting off topic. But that is a great movie. I wonder. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yes, they find the horn. They're like, oh, we're, we're getting close. Well, apparently a stack had broken off something along those lines. And like, that's all they found. And so they're back at it. And it's just another 10 minutes of murky water and them not being able to find things. They end up, I guess, doing a science experiment on land where they recreate the currents and end up doing a model Titanic ship and then shows how it would have landed. And so they're like, no, we're, we're searching in the wrong area. We need to be over here. And so they go over there and then that's whenever they find it. And we're halfway through the movie at this point, whenever they finally find the Titanic. I'll be honest, this entire movie to me seems like the kid who's super into boats wrote some fan fiction at school. And that's about as like emotionally deep as it gets to me. What I don't understand is before they even find the Titanic, they are discussing the fact that they haven't gone to these depths before. They've never really explored this and they don't know how this is actually going to work. And they have questions about everything. Then all of a sudden, when they find the Titanic, they have all this equipment. They're able to go to all these depths. They're able to get these lights down there. And bam, they, they I mean, they light it up, man, and let you see all of the Titanic in the water and all that jazz. I don't know. It was just funny to me that they stressed so much that, oh, it's so dangerous and like all the stuff, crazy stuff. But we got all this equipment and everything. You guys are going to be fine. Yeah. It, it, it does make me curious how like a whole ass submarine implodes, but some like, what are they called? Worklands from Home Depot or just chill right down there? Yeah. Yeah, pretty uh, much. Unbothered. Unbothered. And then this is, I guess, whenever they um, start, I guess, revealing their plan to raise the Titanic. I mean, they, they got to get it out of the water. So apparently what they're going to do is that they're going to fill it with foam and then they're going to hopefully explode some charges next to the Titanic 
I guess, dislodge it from the sea floor and let it rise, um, which honestly, probably the best way to go about it as far as like script writing is concerned. I'm like, okay, that kind of makes sense to me. Um, Personally, I call that strategy the goo and go. <laughs> goo in the hose, then you blow it up and then you go up. But now the, the, it, it was just phone explosions, which I don't know if that um, strategy holds water. It's <laughs> a little pun for you there. There you go. That's whenever that we get back to the Russians and the Russians are saying that, you know, oh, we need to leak this to the press because it needs to get out there that they're trying to raise the Titanic and they, they, start, they need to start asking the question of the why and why are they trying to get this Byzanium stuff? And like, there's that whole little subplot in there where they have to take that little detour, and which really, again, it does not progress the plot in any way, shape or form. And I don't understand why they just continue to go back to these Russians. This movie... I have the same gripes with this movie as I have with the 2016 film Sully by Clint Eastwood. Did you ever watch that? Yeah. It's got the exact same issue. There is a, it's an interesting situation that can be resolved in minutes plot wise. It might take hours functionally, but plot wise we have our event and it's done. And Sully stretch that crap out in two hours by putting a trial in there that didn't have any water behind it and putting like stress as a PTSD, even though like, you know, everyone lived, but it's the exact same scenario you're talking about. This plot maybe has 20 minutes of bones, but between the, I, I have a feeling that they had like a set amount of money in the budget for films and they didn't meet it. And they thought that their budget was going to go lower so they went ahead and just shot this movie on a whim. It's like, I, I don't even know how money works, I'll be perfectly honest, but this felt like a way to write some of it off. I mean, well, you, you, you kind of hope so about that because this movie made no money, but we'll get into that a little bit later on. Um, they end up coming up with the plan with the charges and they're going to go with that. And so they start planning these charges around the boat. And in the process of that, uh, Mr. Science Guy wants to get into one of the, the submarines with the crew and he wants to go with them. He feels like, oh, you know, I want to see it in the water and up close and personal and you can't wait. So he's going to go with them. Well, shocker, it ends up getting lodged in some of the wreckage itself and then they can't get it out. So they end up needing to move it quick. And they need to get everybody out as safe as possible. They don't want to lose any more men. And they start to stress that about it. Well, and this is really like the most climactic part of the film itself, the most tense driven part. And it's still not that tense. Like we know that, oh, these guys are in danger and stuff. But as far as building that tension up, they were just terrible with it because, I mean, their next option was just like, well, let's just blow. Let, let's just blow the charges and hope all of it comes up. They're like, that's all we can do, because if they don't, then they're dead either way. So they just decide, OK, fuck it. Let's blow the charges. Yeah, because they initially say that the timeline for planning the charges and bringing up the Titanic is about two weeks. But when that ship gets stuck down there, it's then transferred to six hours and they speed it up. But boy, howdy, do you feel every bit of that six hours? Because, mm -hmm. again, there's just like an eight minute stretch where we're going from inside the submarine, inside the ship up top, inside the submarine inside the ship up top. And we have like six different cuts before they blow the charges. And that's what finally brings us to when the titular Titanic is raised. They have raised the Titanic. They had mentioned it 20 minutes in. And speaking of, we didn't cover that when they're in the meeting and they say, do you want us to raise the Titanic? Ah, they said it. <laughs> yep. 
Yep. You know, it's going to be a good one whenever they uh, say the title of the movie in the movie. Also, side note, they keep on calling the Titanic her. Yeah. Throughout the entire thing. Just like, well, what happens to her? Or where is she? Where do you think she fell? I think it's unfair to assume that. And this is going to sound like me doing like a conservative Republican bit, but it's not. I think it's unfair for us to assume that both gender. Maybe it's a fucking male. Maybe it's non-binary. I think that we're associating roles with it that it is not accepted. And that's not fucking fair. And I'm not even kidding it a little bit. I think, I, think that's a, I think that's an argument for a different time. All right. You know? It's an argument for a night. Are, are, we, are we ever <laughs> going to talk about this movie again? No, this is an argument for right now, Jesse. All right. Triggered. It's fine. <laughs> why do you th- tell me why you think boats should die? Because <laughs> that's what you're saying right now. Because <laughs> that son of a bitch, Tuggy Tugboat, has been spreading lies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so anyway, raise the Titanic. Anyways, raising the Titanic. I, I keep wanting to call it raising the Titanic, and I don't know why. It's raise the Titanic. They end up getting it raised, and they end up spending like a good 20 minutes just raising it and seeing it come up out of the water. And like, you can see all the water rushing out of it once it hits the uh, surface and all the people are like standing on the USS Denver and they're clapping hands and stuff. They just spent so much time on nothing. You know, they wanted people to, I guess, go with the awe, the spectacle of look, they, they did it. They rose the Titanic. It's like, dude, it's not something that is super remarkable like that. I don't, I don't get why, why they spent so much time on that. Then again, we're of a different generation. I mean, I know that back in previous generations, the Titanic, that was a big thing for a long, long time. Nowadays, it's just, you know, a movie made in the 90s. Um, that's pretty much all that anybody remembers about it. Yeah. And when they finally do raise the Titanic, they all, and, and like you said, they try to build suspense because they do raise the Titanic, but Oh, my God. The submarine that Dr. Science Man fucking Seeger is sitting in, it hasn't come up yet. Is it going to come up? And they like milk your balls for a minute that it might not come up, even though like logistically thinking if it doesn't come up, it's probably in the Titanic because, you know, that's where they were. So one way or the other, they're going to come back up. And like you said, it just fails completely at building suspense because. You can't necessarily, you could because The Shining did it at the very beginning, but you can't necessarily build suspense in like this big epic sort of scale nature thing. Like, because we're already like, oh, look at all that. And we're trying to take in that scope and also try to make like a abyss type scary situation. You, I don't know. It just felt like they were trying too hard to go on two different tones, like having their cake and eating it too. And so they're waiting and they're waiting. And then finally that little sub pops up out of the water and they just look over and they're like, oh, hey. There it is. Yeah. That's that's pretty much it. And then I literally, it gets to a point where after these deep quests has come up and everybody's getting out, again, it's an instance of just lingering on these situations for so long. I had clicked the fast forward 10 button seven times before we got to a scene of just them getting rescued. Yeah. Yeah. And then right after that we just get a lot of shots of them walking the titanic like literally walking from one side of it to the other playing this like orchestra music in the background we're just supposed to be mesmerized by this oh let's let's go on a 15 20 minute adventure where we're just looking at this decrepit ship that's been underwater for so long 
it's it's supposed to mesmerize us but in the end i'm just like let's get this moving we finally get to where the russians they end up showing up with a giant ussr ship well you you're you're overstepping how they got they they didn't just show up they bamboozled the u.s government by calling out a distress signal they end up getting on the ship and they start talking to our three main characters there and it's basically you know a dick measuring contest where the Russian guy's just like, you know, we have many. I don't know why I'm trying to make him like a like, <laughs> yeah, like, a, like a German spy is what I'm going for. And that's not it at all. But I'm you're just going not, for the ravioli. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go with a uh, with the accent at all. I'm just going to say it. Um, but they, <laughs> they're trying to intimidate our three main characters. And it looks like they're being put into a corner. And what are they going to do? They're just this expedition boat they can't really do anything about this giant ship that is being presented to them by the uh by the ussr which again is just a giant like look at my cock anyways war is just cocks war war never changes (laughs) it's just the balls (laughs) (laughs) anyways they they basically tell our main characters that you know, you're going to give up the uh, Byzanium, you're going to give up the Titanic, and you're going to give it up to the USSR. It is our right to take it. And basically just trying to do any type of intimidation tactic. Well, instead of getting intimidated, they, they're like, we'd like for you to take a look at on the balcony with us. And so they walk over and you see the big USSR ship in the background. All of a sudden, a submarine pops up out of the water that is American. And then you see the flyover of jet carriers going over top they're just showing that you know yeah we got we got a bigger dick than you the russians are just like we will go and fuck off over here that's just german <laughs> i know i don't know why i want to make them german my my friend you are you are very talented at many different things but russian accents are not fun up there R- russian accents is not in your forte <laughs> i want to drink the vodka i don't know no see it's, it's not the, you see we got to get into like yes comrade it's it's more more in the bottom of the throat yes very good right on all right (laughs) (laughs) oh man so that's whenever the russians go and they fuck off uh so we get to the point now where they're looking for the byzanium oh no, no no i'm sorry now tugboating the Titanic along and they're bringing it to, I guess, the New York Harbor. Yeah, another another 10 minutes or I, we keep saying 10 minutes, but like five minute segment of just them driving. But it's true, though. It's because like this whole movie is just that. Like, that's the reason why this movie is two hours long and it could have been a tight 120. It could have been a half hour. It really could. have. I guarantee you. I'll tell you what, 100 subscribers and or like 100 views on a video, and I will cut out every single extended shot of that movie, and I will put out just the abridged cut. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, it will be 45 minutes. And you can send that information to rffpod at gmail.com. That's rffpod at gmail.com. Moving on. So, yeah, they end up bringing it into New York because they're going to complete the Titanic's maiden voyage that it never got to complete. They're bringing it through the harbor and like everybody's looking at it and we have to spend 10 minutes on that bullshit. And then they finally 
get to where they think the Byzanium is or where Alan Guinness told them it was going to be. And they open it up and they find the dead body of the guy who held Alan Guinness at gunpoint. Then they start opening up all the crates and it's gravel, isn't it? Like that's what they said it was. It was just rocks. A dead man with seven boxes of gravel, some shit like that. Yeah. And he had one thing in his pocket and it was a postcard. As soon as they said that, I'm like, well, where does the postcard say? The, the, the thing we've been forgetting to mention is that whenever they bring this cat up, because it's not throughout the movie, but at the very beginning, and like when we meet Alec Guinness, it's very important that he used to say the guy who died. I think both of them did because you run into the guy who died in Siberia and the guy who died on the ship. And it's thank God for South B, like South B.Y. Mm-hmm. And it turns out South B's not a name. It's a place. Yep. That's essentially where we're heading with this. But before we get there, it ends up coming to light that uh, Jason Robard's character, the Admiral, he ends up confessing that this was supposed to be used for defense, but I don't know if it would just stay that way. And, and you know, our scientist guy's like, no, it would only be have to be used for defense. And he's like, yeah, well, maybe with this president, but the next president and the next president, I mean, circumstances change. And I guarantee you there's a think tank right now that's trying to figure out how to make a Byzanium bomb. And so it changes the whole complexity of the story because now it's a it's a whole overarching thing of, you know, should anybody have this type of power in their hands? Luckily, there was no Byzanium aboard the ship, so everything's supposed to be hunky-dory, and our two other characters, Dirk Pitt and Seagram, uh, start talking about the postcard, and Dirk Pitt starts figuring out that, the, well, like you said, like it's, a, it's not a person, it's a place. And so they, <laughs> they decide to go on a trip to, where, I guess it was London or something like that. It was, it was some British place. Anyways. It was a graveyard, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was some kind of British graveyard. They have two grave diggers there who are just like, you want me to dig up the body now? I got to stop doing accents. That wasn't bad. That wasn't bad at all. <laughs> British is fine. Okay, well, well, I'll start working on the Russian a little bit more. There'll be a test next week. As long as I stick with the European countries and I don't start getting down into uh, some uh, stereotypical stuff, I think we'll be all right. Well, white stereotypes, we're, we're all right. It's called a punch up, Jesse. <laughs> It's fine. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. They end up going to this graveyard and they find the Byzantium is buried with this person or this uh, on this plot. And so it brings up the question, should we dig up the Byzantium or should these two guys who hated each other in the beginning or, you know, just didn't really was discontent with each other in the beginning who are now friends? Are they going to tell everybody that they found it or are they going to keep it to themselves and then nobody gets the Byzantium and can use it for bad things? And then they choose, obviously, to leave it buried. So they tell the the grave diggers to fuck off and they walk away best friends. They never really ever bring up the whole relationship thing again and archer's characters not brought up again at all um, they just walk away hand in hand buddies uh, away from the graveyard i mean russians almost blowing you up might do that i guess but it's just a dull ending to an even duller movie man uh that's pretty much the meat and potatoes of this one unless the, i mean do you think there's something that we missed in the plot at least there's a couple more intricacies into like the love triangle because only because eventually Seagram finds out 
that they used to date, but Seagram's the only one that knows that they used to date, and um, like they never actually talk about it. And there's an offhand line at the very end where Pitt says something along the lines of like, an old girlfriend used to tell me that it's like, I used to know this old girl or something like that. And Seagram goes, Oh, well, I bet you have. And that's the end of it. So I guess we're led to believe she stayed with Seagram, but other than that, we covered it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I just wanted to mention, this was something that was really early on and it wasn't something that was really pertinent to the plot itself, but I think it's uh, notable to mention that we've done four movies now and three of those four movies involved killing animals. Oh, wow. Yeah. In the very beginning of this one, they kill that dog in Siberia. Mm-hmm. Another indication that a way to make a bad movie is to show us a cute animal and then kill it. Uh, nothing will ever beat Fridge Cat to me or Freezer Cat. <laughs> freezer Cat. Freezer, freezer cat, cat does whatever a Freezer Cat does. Uh, I was going for more uh, friends, Smelly Cat. but Oh, Go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> well, fuck yourself with a steak. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that covers uh, God Save the Screen. So I think it's time we go into our next segment, which we call the Can't Buy Me Love Critic Review of the Day. It's the Can't Buy Me Love Reviews of the Day. Come on, let's hear them out. Oh, hell nah. On this show, we typically like to have a review from the actual time of this film's release so we can get a bit of a barometer as to what people thought of the movie. We'll get a critic review of the time and typically a positive fan review from now. Yes, yes. Well, I have one that is from a critic. His name is Bruce McCabe, and he is from the Boston Globe. Uh, He is a top critic on Rotten Tomatoes. He actually, (laughs) he gave it a very bad review, but he he pretty much summed up this movie to me um, and hear me out. The movie is a misconceived, anticlimactic, wooden, phlegmatically paced, and waterlogged travel log that devotes so much time to its nautical machinery that there's none left over for even an approximation of interaction among the actors. Which is pretty pretty much sums up this entire movie. It is wooden. It is not plot driven. It is very like, look at these shots, look at these shots, look at these shots. And there's not really anything to keep the viewer interested as far as like keeping them anticipating, oh my God, what's happening next. It just was a series of events that was happening that was just like, oh no, uh, you know, they tripped over this. Oh no, they got stuck here. But everything turned out fine. And it just seemed like there was no build-up anticipation because it seemed like besides the the one instance of the guys dying in the little submarine, it seemed everything was like, oh, my God, this happened. And then the next scene, oh, no, it's fine. Yeah, I'd say that that sentiment hits the nail right on the head. It's right on the button of what is wrong and factual about that movie. Because, again, I don't necessarily know how to duplicate that but what i can tell you is a review off of letterboxd from user lebowski do popcorn emoji camera emoji popcorn emoji emoji slap or not a slap board a uh slate emoji popcorn emoji he gave it three and a half stars sleepy action adventure movie perfect for nodding off to on the couch on a weekend afternoon that's how you rate your movies when you can fall asleep to them not much happens but it's still a good movie with slow momentum no doubt seemed fantastic and far-fetched at the time 
but now seems dated and silly because the ship arrives at the surface level fully intact, even though witnesses describe the Titanic as breaking in two before sinking. The actual discovery of that Titanic five years after this movie came out would prove those witnesses correct. Very good, Lebowski do. John Barry's beautiful score more than makes up for any flaws. I would contest that. Yeah, highly disagree. I mean, don't get me wrong. John Barry is an amazing composer, but not for this movie. I mean, the like just even that alone could not build this movie to be suspenseful, build this movie to have excitement, build this movie to give you that shock and awe factor of, oh my gosh, they did it. You know, um, it just, it was a good score on a terrible movie. It, the only way I can describe this thing is just, it's, it's a whole lot of nothing. A whole, a whole, a whole big old helping just a a Texas size, supersized, large size Whataburger helping of nothing. Well, and what's funny about that review is I agree with most of what he said. I just don't agree with the rating that he gave it in the end for it. You know, like, <laughs> like, oh, it's great to fall asleep to. Yeah, that's not a good thing, dude. Yeah, like the thing about movies is you're supposed to watch them. Well, I think that gets us out of the reviews onto our next segment, which we like to call it's the end of the flick as we know it. And I feel mid. And now for the moment you've been waiting for, it's the end of the flick as we know it. No, seriously, get out. Go on. Get. Shoot. All righty, ladies and gentlemen, it is the end of the flick as we know it. This is the final thoughts portion of the podcast where we'll again tell you our final thoughts and we'll throw in some little trivia tidbits here and there, probably some box office and budget numbers if we can find them. Uh, Jesse, what do you got for me today? <laughs> what? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much my final thoughts of this flick is that it is boring i mean it is not worth watching just because it does it will put you to sleep so quick i unfortunately had to watch it twice i try to watch all these movies twice just so i can have one watch where i'm actually taking notes and then another watch where i'm just taking it in right and man each time that i went through this one it was painful it kind of shows in whenever you talk about the box office because Box office numbers were absolutely terrible. This production budget was $40 million, which is insane to me. But I mean, I guess whenever you want to fly over from the U.S. Army and you want submarines there and you know what, and, and you have these models that they're making, because obviously they didn't actually raise the Titanic. They're making these cool models and stuff. It really ate into a production budget. But overall, this movie made $7 million at the box office, which it only made 0.2 times its production budget. That's that's what's called a flop? Yeah. Uh, the floppiest of flops can flop, for sure. That's 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 floppier than your dad's balls, like in general. Like, <laughs> every, like everybody's collective dad's balls. Like that amount of floppiness, that's how much of a flop this movie made. And so it's uh, it's just I mean, it's a terrible flick overall. I'll, I'll reserve everything else that I have to say for whenever we get to the sour scale. So what do you got for me, man? What is your final thoughts of this flick? I, I it was boring as all hell, but I found it mostly inoffensive. And, you know, if I, it, it, it is truly a good white noise movie and that doesn't give it any cinematic merit. But I mean, it's good to fall asleep, too. And it's in my. uh prime account for about two more days because i had to buy it again <laughs> so i could also watch it twice 
Um, and I hated every second of it. And I'll, I, if I'm being honest, I bought it four times because I did fall asleep two times watching it. It's, I just can't describe it as anything else, but a whole lot of nothing. And the fact that it only made $7 million does not surprise me. And it sucks that they spent that much money, but they didn't have any stars in it besides Alec Guinness. And Alec Guinness was in it for a second. And if we're being honest, other than Star Wars in 1980, like what other things did Alec Guinness draw? You can tell me if I'm wrong. You can tweet at me. You're right. You know, there's not there's not a whole lot there for this movie. As a matter of fact, uh, some of the crew members even played some gags. And I don't know if you actually saw this. I saw it and I thought it was hilarious when the camera pans across the Titanic just after it surfaces. The model builders actually inserted a little gag. Did you see it? No, what was it? It was a little miniature like crewman working a hand pump. They had raised up the Titanic and like you just see this miniature figure that's just pumping this water out of it. It was hilarious to me. No, but I kind of want to go back again, but I'm not have to open it for a fifth time, which I just morally disagree with. <laughs> Your purchases of that movie are probably more than its home box office that it made. So that that's just factually incorrect. I didn't spend seven million dollars is still a lot of money, Jesse. There are people starving in there are people starving in the streets, okay. Jesse. First of all, I said <laughs> I said at home box office, which still is egregiously over exaggerated, but not to the extent that you're talking about, because it's home box office was like four hundred thousand dollars, something like that. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Gotcha, bitch. <laughs> well, I think that's all the little tidbits, trivia facts that we have for you. I think you guys know where we pretty much stand with this movie. It's just kind of bleh. With that being said, I think it's time we put it on the sour scale. How the sour scale works is that we rank each film one to 10, 10 being the worst movie that we have, and one being the best. My ranking goes right now i have windows at six i've got i've got saturn three at five and then i've got xanadu at four i think that i'm probably going to end up moving windows down i'm gonna move that down to seven and i'm gonna put this one at a six because it's dull but it's not offensive and it doesn't make me angry like uh windows did it is not that bad but it's less entertaining than a Saturn three or a Xanadu. At least there were some parts in both of those movies that I kind of enjoyed. There's really no part of this movie where I got some type of enjoyment out of it or some type of awe or anything like that. It was just dull middle of the road, not much going on. Yeah. I believe my rankings right now, I can't quite remember where I placed Saturn three, but I'll go ahead and just readjust it for this one. I have Xanadu at one right now. Um, and my the way I do my rankings is they're going to be ever changing. And ten is Windows. I am adamantly confident that that will not change. <laughs> well, we still got cruising coming up, so buckle up. Even then, I've seen cruising before. I do not like that movie, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I'm going to pop this one at seven. It's mostly inoffensive, but I have Saturn sitting at a six right now. I might those might change. I think I might move eventually move them up to the five and six spot. But it's at a seven right now, mostly inoffensive, but that doesn't mean I loved it. And it just more often than not, I will discredit a movie if it's mediocre because they didn't necessarily try anything. Do you see anything topping your Xanadu pick for number one? Oh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. It, quite, it could quite possibly happen, but that's for future Kieran to know. But right now, and also rest in peace, you living Newton-John. We miss you. 
Oh yes, yes. I'm sorry. We uh we record these in advance, so we haven't gotten to talk about it. Rest in peace, Olivia Newton John. Sad to hear about your passing. We are honored to have you on our first ever inaugural episode. Thank you for everything that you did. I love your energy. She can't hear you. She can hear me. She can hear me in my heart. <laughs> You're absolutely right. (laughs) All right. I think we have come to the end of the program here. Kieran, do you have anything else that you want to say before we get into our last segment? Not at all, my friend. Pass that lighter. It's time for plugs, not drugs. Oh, yeah, that's the good shit. Man, fuck these drugs. I think it's time we spread some plugs. You got those plugs? Hey, man, let me get some of them plugs. I'd say it is by before a plug. In Plugs Not Drugs, we talk about everything that is not the movie. We talk about everything that we have going on in our personal lives. We let you know any cool things that we have coming up, anything that we could plug. Kieran, what you got for me? Uh, my name is Kieran Gibbs. You can find me on the only social media I'm active on, which is Twitter at the Gib Mr. 16 with I'll go ahead, just spell it. T-H-E-G-I-B-S-T-E-R-16. You can find me on Twitter and that's about it. All right. What about the, what about the band? How's the band doing? I have a band. It's called Radio War, R-A-D-I-O-W-O-R-E. We have a show coming up in October. It's at the House of Blues. You can check out ours and their website. Oh, okay. The House of Blues in Dallas, right? Yes. We're not playing the House of Blues. We're playing one of their rooms, but I'm not going to let everybody know that. (laughs) Just anybody who listens to podcasts. Exactly. It's 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 only for you guys. Well, because I, I can be open and honest. These people are my friends. Yeah, we're going to be playing there. And then other than that, me and my therapist are getting along great. We had a bit of a sesh today. So that's about everything going on in my personal life. How about you, bud? Uh, everything's going good. Uh, glad to hear that you're uh, taking care of yourself, mind, body, and spirit. She called me a bitch. It was funny. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't really call me a bitch. That's, that's how you would get my attention. <laughs> No, um, we have a lot going on, man. In my world, I just recently got engaged. I'm super excited about it. Krista, I love you. Can't wait to marry you. But on top of that, we ended up going to California for a week and I got to spend some time cruising some studios and went on the Warner Brothers tour and the Universal tour. And also would definitely recommend the new Harry Potter ride. If you haven't seen that thing, dude, it is ridiculous. Ridiculous. You go through the whole Harry Potter experience. Like you see all the props, you see everything, man. It's awesome. Highly, highly recommend. This is not a commercial for Universal Studios. So let me move on <laughs> to something else here. Um, well, uh, let, let me, let me t- I, this just reminded me of an anecdote. I accidentally went to a Neo concert over the weekend. Really? Yeah. Um, so I, I flew up to Vegas with a couple of my friends. And so it's toward the end of the night. But me and my friend, uh, who shall go nameless right now, because I don't want to get him in trouble, we decide, well, I decide anyway, he's going to go play wing for me, that I want to throw some ass at a club with some strange women. Bad idea in Las Vegas. So you just, we had to go put on button-up shirts because it was a dress code, and they it was a $60 cover. We basically felt like we got fleeced. It's 2 in the morning. I've just bought him a $25 Jack and Coke. I'm feeling pretty bad about myself. When all of a sudden... Just the DJ over the loudspeaker says, are you all righty? Are you guys ready for Neo? And then we both just kind of look at each other and give like, an, all right, I, I could be down for Neo. <laughs> and, and I'll be damned if half an hour later we weren't singing a Miss Independent. Oh, that's hilarious. That's fantastic. Dude, he, <laughs> he, 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 uh, 
what's that one Rihanna song to the left, to the left? Mm-hmm. Or no, it's Beyonce. Yeah. That's but he, Beyonce. he covered that song. Neo puts on a hell of a show, but it was two 30 in the morning. He was late. We've also got uh, Campfire Cravings that we are still doing the GoFundMe for. Me and Kieran are working through a little bit of a rewrite on the script right now, trying to make it fit within the budget that we have and stuff, make it a little bit more manageable. Go to www.gofundme.com backslash Campfire Cravings, or you can also go to the website www.roddenreels.com and click on the link and that'll take you to the same exact place from there. If you can, get out there and donate. And also, I am excited to announce Drumroll, please. We have merch, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, we finally have uh, done a partnership with tpublic.com. You should be able to go to T-E-E-P-U-B-I-C.com backslash Rod and Reels, and that will take you to the whole Rod and Reels production lineup, including the Raspberry Fields Forever shirts. You can get shirts, you can get coffee mugs, you can get phone cases, you can get a pillow. You want to lay your head at night on a beautiful Raspberry Fields Forever pillow? Hey, do it, man. No one's going to judge you, especially not me. I I really wanted to interrupt you, but I didn't because you had a really good spiel going on. But I hate to break it to you. You spelled T-pubic. You forgot the L. Oh. T- you get what I'm trying to say. It's public. <laughs> it was- Anyways. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, well, I literally wouldn't have said anything if I didn't spell it in my head and I was like oh that's pubic oh that's funny that's hilarious well it'll take you to the same place hopefully if not enjoy T pubic sounds like a golf fetish site <laughs> oh that's hilarious and um, that, could, that could either be really good or really bad And on top of that as well, we have finally released Daddy's Girl, our award-winning short film. I was the director on and Kieran was my first AD on. It has finally released online. You can find it on youtube.com. If not, you can also subscribe to my channel and it'll be right there on my channel for you. Um, You can also go to our Facebook page. You can go to our website at roddenreels.com and check it out, man. It's a six-minute short film. I promise you it won't let you down. Thank you to the casting crew as well because this is kind of the end of the run right and we are giving it to the public to the mass for everybody to enjoy so at this point um i just want to say thank you to the cast and crew and i appreciate all the work that y'all put into this we would not have been able to do it without you and we did this during the pandemic so so glad that everybody got out of there safe hi david (laughs) Yes. Hi, David. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Riley. My little niece, Riley, was actually the little demon girl in the film. And she still has friends come up to her today and are like, so where can I find it on Netflix? And I'm like, God, uh, not how it works, kid. Anyways, gosh, I think that's everything. Take us home, Jesse. I think that brings us to the end of our show for today. Thank you guys for joining in. You can always send us your comments and feedback to rffpod at gmail.com. You can always reach out to us too by going to my website, www.roddenreels.com. That is with a Z. Our next episode, we will be talking about the nude bomb, which is something that I'm super excited about. It is a get smart flick, and I just think it is a good time. Uh, Karen, what do you think? I just, I, uh, we deserve this. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> yes. After these last couple of films, I think we do deserve this. My name is Jesse Rotten. My name is Karen Gibbs. And that's all the berries worth picking. We'll see you in the fields next week. Bye for now. You've been listening to Raspberry Fields Forever. 
a Rod and Reels podcast. Available on Apple Music, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you receive your podcast. You can go to the website www.rodandreels.com for even more content. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>